So yeah, if you turn in your Bible to Psalm 104, just what a wonderful rich psalm this is. So we're going to finish by doing something, it's kind of related um, to, to the book I've written, God of All Things, but it's not really, a, it, it's more of a sort of a devotional way. We're going to uh, have communion a bit later, going to come back into a time of worship, which is, I'm so pleased, a great way to finish. Um, but I wanted to give more of a sort of devotional message about the goodness of God in what he's created from Psalm 104. I feel like having done reaching post-Christian culture, spirit and sacrament, and women in ministry, there's a lot of sort of cerebral, we've got to think about how to do this. I just thought it might be nice just to spend some time reflecting on the goodness of God and, and what, the wonder of what he's created. So Psalm 104, verse 1. As we read this, just notice the number of things that God has made that the psalmist draws worship from. The number of created things. The psalmist is exegeting creation for us. And as if you studied the psalm in detail before, you'll know he's using the days of creation to walk through it. Day one, day two. So we've got light, and then we've got scenes, and then we've got land and seas, and sun, moon. He, he does it, the, the whole psalm is shaped really around the creation song of creation one. And as he does, just notice the number of ways in which he tries to elicit worship from the listener or the reader like us by saying, look at the things God has made and how great God is that he's made them. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds. His ministers a flaming fire. Let's pause a second. There's days one and two now in Genesis, right? And just look at the, but just even there, how many different created things is he calling our attention to to worship God? Clouds, winds, fire, light, heavens. He's saying, oh Lord God, you are very great and you are very great because you are the one who is clothed in light. It's fascinating sometimes these great um, icons, like, um, by which I mean like physical paintings of God that, by the way, I'm not a fan of, paintings of God. I generally think that's not a second commandment thing to do. But people, a lot of great pictures do this. And what they sometimes do is they try and picture the sun dressed in a robe of purple or something and the spirit dressed in something representing earth and sea, and then they try and paint, Rublev does it in his icon on the Trinity, and he tries to paint the father clothed in light. And it's quite fun watching one of the greatest painters in history try and paint someone who's clothed in light. It's impossible. You can't, what, is, what on earth would that mean? As far as I, but you are clothed in light. That in, in the way Paul talks about it, the one who is clothed in unapproachable light whom no one can ever see or has seen. It's just God is shrouded in the, in the essence of what gives light to everything else. So in some ways, the reason you can't see him is not because he's too dark, but because he's so light, that's all you can see. You know, oh, oh Lord, we would render, oh, help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. It's such a wonderful hymn, isn't it? But like, what a wonderful way of thinking about it. You can't see God because he's surrounded in light. And you get that in these wonderful pictures where people see God and then suddenly all I could see, and I just couldn't see, I could just see dazzle. And beyond that, and, and we, of course, we have the same thing with the sun, where you just can't actually see the sun, except in photo form, in which the camera filter is taking a lot of the, the dazzle. So this is light, 
He makes the clouds his chariots. Now, obviously, I'm assuming in that not a, a white sky like the one we've been so graciously blessed by the Californian uh, local tourist board with the last few days. But when you see a cloud that almost looks like it could just clouds racing through the sky. I don't know if you do this, but the psalmist is saying he makes the clouds his chariots. It's almost like imagine God charging across the sky with the cloud as a chariot on which he's seated. You know, don't over-physicalize God. The psalmist isn't doing that, but just saying this is what he's doing. When the cloud races, just think, that's, that's the Lord driving, controlling the exact location of that cloud. It's there to lift him up. It's there to say, there's even the fact that clouds exist, they give rain, of course, but physically they have a purpose. But spiritually, they're almost there to symbolize the fact that there is a canopy between the world that you live in and the world of God that is high and above those things. And there's this sort of frame or dome that again often comes in in theophanies in the Bible. They see this sort of huge dome or expanse above which is the throne of God. Ezekiel sees it, doesn't he? This is an enormous crystal dome on top of which is the throne with the Son of Man on it. And just this idea that there needs to be a sort of protective canopy between you and God. And even creation is structured like a temple, saying there is the holy of holies where God lives. And there is the, there is the, the highest heaven. There is the sort of intermediate heaven, which is that the, what we would call the sky. And then there is the earth, and then behind that the sea. And it's like almost the whole of the cosmos is shaped like a temple, as if to say God is up there, he's distant from you. And these clouds are his chariot. Carry on reading. He's set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. So God's garment is light. The earth's garment is the deep or the seas. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. And so water has this ambiguous role to play even in this little stanza and in the Bible as a whole. At one level, water is this sort of terrifying place of surging darkness and chaos, which is why the great sea monsters are there. And whenever you read about sea monsters in the Bible, your scientific brain gets weirded out. But you realize that they represent this sort of untamable darkness. And if you've ever been lost at sea, we probably haven't, but if you had, you would know how frightening it is and how much you feel like you're just subjected to dark forces beyond your control. And the ocean functions like that. Sort of out there, it's, that's what Revelation 21 means, doesn't it? When it's saying there was no longer any sea. It doesn't mean there's no water. It means the forces of violent, swirling rebellion against God's authority have been definitively tamed, which is what Jesus pictures as he says, shh. Be still. The Lord of the sea is here. So in that sense, the waters represent this sort of surging, dark, death-filled morass that's up in, rising up in rebellion against God. But at the same time, water is the source of life on earth. And so at the same time as saying, you set a boundary that the waters may not pass thus far and no further, then immediately says, and you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. You water the mountains. The donkeys quench their thirst. In that sense, fresh water as distinct from salt water or rain and springs and so on, is the life-giving, is a sign of life as opposed to the ocean, which is the sign of death and chaos. It's a sign of God's divine order. It's the fact that the water cycle works 
is to bring rain so that people might have life. And even, I don't know, if I was doing a, a song about the glory of God in creation, I'm not sure I'd mention wild donkeys as early as, as he does. It's, it's like, that. this is just one example of these, wild donkeys pop up a few times in the, New, in the Old Testament as examples of creatures that human beings just haven't really figured out yet. You know, in Job, it's like, do you know how the wild donkey, do you know, it's one of those creatures like, well, how are you going to get a, you can't even get what you would think of as a tame donkey, it doesn't do what you want. So what about a wild donkey? Some of them are just out there. And so this is what, it's like these creatures, we're not in control of, but that's because God is providing their water. We don't, we don't do this. Here, donkey, here, donkey, have a drink there. It's like God does that. God provides the water for them. And from your lofty abode, high above, you water the mountains. I, I made a, you know, probably one of the first things I did in ministry for teaching is I did a, a video of Psalm 104 over a video footage of, from David Attenborough's Planet Earth. Um, again, great Englishman, but um, these, you know, those kind of nature videos, the BBC do them really well. And there's a video which basically just tracks Psalm 104 without meaning to in, I think, Venezuela. And then the, the camera goes over Angel 4. You've probably seen it because I would have used it on impact training. Um, but the, and sort of obviously like the drone or helicopter or something just drops over Angel Falls as you do. And there's rainbows everywhere. And it's the largest waterfall in the world or the highest. And it's just this, but it's just from your lofty abode, you water the mountains, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. And the camera just goes over and you just see this sort of disappearing, um, sp just splendor really of water and cloud and steam and rainbow and mountain and animal. And you just think, this is just there, is there, right now, as we're speaking, we're not looking at it, but it's just pouring. Iguathu Falls, Vic Falls, Niagara, they're just billions and billions of tons of water every second just flying over these things, just pointing to the fact that God is the God of abundance who satisfies the needs of his creatures. You cause the grass, now we move into day three. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Grass is one of the, is one of the great... What, grass, what does grass symbolize primarily in the, in the Bible? Not in this text in particular. He just talks about it growing. What is in the Psalms? What does grass usually... What's it contrasted with? Or what does it represent in the Psalms, men? Sorry? Yeah, the temporal... Exactly, the temporal nature of humans. So there you have grass and you have trees. Trees last hundreds of years. How old are the sequoias further upstate? Are they like, I feel like some of them are 2,000 years old or something. I remember being factored about it once. I don't remember. But there's some trees in this state that are just, or maybe the Joshua tree. Or like, but these, someone's nodding authoritatively over there, sir. So what's the answer? Over 2,000 year old trees. So there, there are trees in this state that are still alive, that, are, that were there when Christ was born. I mean, it, just, it just makes you think, how, in contrast to, the grass, which is here today, gone tomorrow. In fact, sometimes you just grow grass so you can cut it down and feed it to your cows. It, grass is just this sort of very transient thing. And again, the psalmists often lean into it. They don't hear, to be fair, but they, they, the contrast between grass and trees is a very common one because grass is the wicked and trees are the righteous. Grass is here today, gone tomorrow. And actually, grass on a good day looks lush and green as it's been raining a few, you know, the last few days. You look and think, wow, this looks actually quite robust and steady, but it only takes a couple of weeks and it goes brown or yellow first and then brown and then just it's it's just like dust you think it it's, it doesn't have life in itself whereas the trees are there sort of magnificently standing for centuries and the grass the wicked are like grass chaff <laughs> the trees are like righteous they flourish they draw depths from the earth that the grass never accesses and they're able to stand for many generations and 
It's just a beautiful picture that God has created the world to point to things like that. He didn't have to make grass. God doesn't have a body. He didn't have to create anything. It's not like he needs it to, oh, and otherwise, what will the cows have to eat? Well, you didn't need to create cows either. He's created a physical world of splendor to point to him himself and to point to truths about the world he's made. And grass is one of the many. But the plants are there for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart, which is just a beautifully rich sacramental passage in the middle of a psalm about creation, isn't it? Bread, wine, and oil. So these, these really, you've now got water, bread, wine, and oil actually in the space of a few verses, which are pretty much the four physical things God created, which he gave to the church to express particular meanings. Oil we use a bit less, although you still anoint with oil and we lay, lay on hands and so on. But obviously water in baptism and bread and wine in communion. And I think these gifts are, God has made, made them that way, but what he's done is he's created bread to strengthen the heart, oil to make the face shine, and wine to gladden the heart of a person. So I just think even if you, without overreading it, but even if you just run your sacramental theology through that filter, that what happens is bread is the thing that you eat at the start of the day to give you the strength to go on. Wine is the thing you drink at the end of the day to rejoice that the work is done. And communion gives you both. Communion gives you the strength to go on and face what's next and the celebration that your sins are forgiven and washed away. It gives you the gladness mingled with the strength. And then the oil makes your face shine as the anointing of God's spirit comes upon you and gives, lifts your face to shine just as the face of your heavenly father shines over you. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. They, this is still true, but Lebanon cedar is just prized. They're just amazing trees. And the writers of the Bible obviously often point to it. They're used in the temple, famously. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. Again, rock badgers probably wouldn't have appeared in my creation song. I don't know, maybe, maybe they would have in yours. But they are, these, the trees represent the permanence that I mentioned, but they also, again, a lot of scripture represent a place that serves as a home for the other creatures, that, that, a, that a tree, obviously trees for the Christian represent even more than that. They represent the tree. There's the two trees at the start of the garden. The Bible begins with two trees and ends with one. That you start with the knowledge of the good and, e good and evil or the tree of life, but in Revelation you have the one tree with the 12 kinds of fruit and the leaves for healing of the nations. And it, of course that one tree in a sense is the, the tree on which the Prince of Glory died. It's sort of the the sort of the cross that what is always called a cross in the gospels it's always called a tree in the book of acts it's like you you hung him on a tree but effectively what you did was you took the two pieces of dead wood that looked like that and you turned it to a life-giving thing and you didn't even mean to do it you thought you were just bringing death to a man but actually you brought life to the tree the wood collided with the, the prince of life and instead of bringing death to him he brought life to the wood and turned it into a tree which now nourishes all nations now, I'm not saying the psalmist is saying any of those things. I think the psalmist, is, but I just thought I'd, it's worth saying anyway, right? But what the psalmist is saying is that the trees are actually a home. And that is a theme that comes out a lot in the Gospels. The idea that, yeah, you, you plant a mustard seed and it grows and grows and grows until it becomes a home for the creatures. And that becomes a picture of the kingdom. And it's a picture of the kingdom, not just in Matthew. It's a picture of the kingdom in Daniel, isn't it? This is what, it, this is what happened. This sort of tree grows and other and you were you like nebuchadnezzar you you got these all the kingdoms of the earth are yours and you became this sort of tree but you're going to be cut down all those sorts of images um, are often used of kings 
kings when they're doing trash talk with each other, setting in battles. I'm, a fir- I'm, I'm this kind of a tree and you're just a thistle. There's almost like, look at my kingdom, look at my, the scale of this tree seems to represent the majesty of human kingdoms or not. So when the kingdom of God is a tree that starts tinier than all the other seeds and grows larger than all the other trees, we're supposed to see this is a kingdom that is going to grow in invisible ways but become the kingdom that crushes all the others. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar from their, for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. So the sun and the moon, the one that is the source of all lights and the one that only gives light by reflecting light from somewhere else. I always just think that's such a beautiful picture of the relationship between the light, the, the light of God and the light of God's people. As actually, the, we, are the, we are, in a sense, the light of the world in the same way that the moon is. You know, the light has all come from somewhere else and our job is just to reflect it by bearing the likeness of the true light that's come into the world. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here's the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. The manifoldness of the works of God. I remember this is probably one of those sections of a book that most impacted me that I've ever read is in Piper's Pleasures of God when he he riffs off this verse and talks about a spider that, um, a sort of underwater spider that comes to the surface, swallows a gulp of air, swims down, blows out the bubble of air that he's got, and then lits a little bit of web around it, and then goes back up and gets another one, and goes to, and basically gradually builds this large enough air bubble in which he can then lay his eggs and raise his family. And Piper just says, oh, Lord, how manifold are your works? And the number of things like that in creation where when you hear how that animal works, and again, on the video I made about this psalm, I use lots of examples of these weird creatures in the video, now, this is why I watch nature programs. This is why I think David Attenborough is an evangelist, even though he doesn't believe in God. And it's the most extraordinary thing. There's a, the sea teems with creatures innumerable. If you've watched Planet Earth, I, I don't know if you have, but this is probably, it was, the, it was a really groundbreaking series about 20 years back. And uh, it's just really funny because he does these nine episodes of sort of the things you'd expect, you know, based on different landscapes, mountains, jungles, deserts, all the things. Shallow seas is one of them. So the sort of where all the whales are chasing all the big shoals of this and the dolphins and the killer whales. But then the last one, I think, was called Ocean Deep. And it's basically completely dark. And it's an hour of David Attenborough looking at the weirdest shaped things you've ever seen and going, yeah, we don't know what that is. It's just absolutely hilarious. Like, this is far too far away. How are we ever going to find out what that is? Well, it doesn't even have a name. And just these astonishing creatures. It teams of creatures innumerable. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. This hit me when we were snorkeling in Samoa. I know that sounds like we live a very glamorous life, but on honeymoon, we went to Samoa and we went snorkeling. And I, I just, I couldn't believe, we just kept every day. We basically did it every day we were there. You just, fish that are, maybe they might have great snorkeling here, I don't know. But just fish that are a color that you think, I didn't think that color was allowed in creation. It looks like someone's, you know, on the, those old TVs where you turn up the color, color contrast too much, and it's like too bright. And you know, I was looking at fish like that and thinking, how 
earth has this been here all this time simply for the enjoyment of God? Human beings didn't know what that, I don't know what it is. And until people invented the snorkel or even found Samoa, which would have taken a lot of human history before anyone got there, it's like thousands of miles from anywhere. But these things have just been swimming around, just delighting the Lord who rejoices in his works. Creation's theocentric. It's built around who he is. It's not for you. It's just, it's him. And you look and think, may the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation, this little meditation, I guess, just a little reflection on the six days of creation and what it means. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. So just to finish, I wanted to do the one book that Alan didn't ask me to do. I'm going to do the whole of one of my books. But trust me, it's not very long, okay? And I just want to show you just a little meditation on bread in Scripture. You may have come across this. This is a kid's book I wrote um, a couple of years ago. But it's, uh, it's called The Boy from the House of Bread. And I wanted to finish with it because I trust it will help lead us into communion well. And it's just, a, a, I hope, a lovely, a really doing God of all things for children. Like, how do you pick up on the image of bread and tell the story of Jesus? And um, so we're going to walk through it. You won't be able to read it, but that's not the point. You can hopefully see the pictures. My name is Alex. I'm eight and a half, and I come from an African town in the Med. But most of this story is not about me. It's the tale of a boy who was born in a shed, the boy from the house of bread. I first heard of Jesus from Rufus at lunch. You see that guy over there teaching, he said. I saw where my brother was pointing and looked. They say he brought two children back from the dead, a widow's young son, an important man's daughter. They say he heals blindness and walks on the water. They say he was born when his mum wasn't wed in the town they call House of Bread. I stared at the teacher. He didn't look much, no rippling muscles, no crown on his head. So I started to listen to what he was saying. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. Then he told us some stories of scattering seeds and harvesting crops and pulling up weeds. He kept on describing the kingdom of heaven with stories of flour and wheat and leaven and feasting, and everyone poor being fed. They all seem to be about bread. Once, around tea time, my brother and I were part of a crowd in a ravenous mood, when Jesus' helper came over and asked, did you boys remember to bring any food? Just a fish sandwich, I said with a grin. Perfect, he said. So I gave him my tin. He took it to Jesus, who offered a prayer, then broke the bread loaves before starting to share. The food just kept coming. So much fish and bread that it made an incredible edible spread with nobody hungry and 5,000 fed. I've never seen anything like it, I said. A man who can multiply bread. The trouble began a bit later that summer. They captured his cousin and cut off his head. They started a plot about how they could kill him. They couldn't get over the things Jesus said, like, I am the light in a world that's asleep. and I am the shepherd who dies for his sheep. And I am the savior who raises the dead. And I am the life-giving bread. I didn't see Jesus again till the spring. Things were beginning to come to a head. The word on the streets of Jerusalem was that the priests and the leaders all wanted him dead. Dad was concerned. It didn't look pretty. Jesus had angered the local committee and thousands of pilgrims were filling the city for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I woke up that Friday. The morning was chilly as Dad told my brother to get out of bed. We have to get going right now, whispered Dad. They've captured the man from the House of Bread. He knew it was coming. He said not to fight. 
They all had a Passover supper last night. He said he'd be captured before it was light, but that in the end it would all be all right. He said not to fear, but to trust him instead. And he left them with wine and bread. We ran to the edge of the city in tears. Don't worry, they'll put him on trial, Dad said. But when we arrived, it was less like a trial and more like a mocking parade instead. They made Jesus dress in a bright purple gown and twisted together a prickly crown. Later, he carried his cross out of town, so weak that he couldn't stop falling down. I stared as a soldier in silver and red, took Dad by the arm and pointed ahead. You carry his cross, he said. Dad had to carry the old rugged beam to the hill called the Skull. He couldn't refuse. Rufus and I kept ourselves out of sight as they hoisted the man they called King of the Jews. I looked at the man on the cross as he bled. The afternoon sky became darker like lead. He finally shouted and bowed his head. My mission is finished, he said. It felt like the end of the world. It was. We walked back in silence and went to bed. Saturday came and I cried all day long. They'd murdered the man who could multiply bread and the hope of the world was dead. I woke up on Sunday before it was morning. Some women were chattering out in the street. They said they were heading for Jesus' grave. I decided to follow them all in bare feet. As Jerusalem's sunrise was piercing the gloom, the women arrived at the tomb. You probably know graves are closed off with stones, but this one was open. No body, no bones. How could this happen? The women all cried. Two shining strangers stood off to one side. I look for life in a graveyard, they said. You're after the man from the house of bread? He's not here. He's risen, just like he said. Your king is alive, not dead. That week was a blur. The city was buzzing. The friends who had seen him were starting to preach. But I didn't see Jesus until two weeks later. He barbecued breakfast for us on the beach. I loved it. He meant us my favorite dish, freshly baked rolls served with charcoal grilled fish. What happens now, master? Somebody said. He paused as he finished a mouthful of bread. Harvest, he answered. Go into my field and feed hungry people and see the sick healed. Tell all the world I'm alive and not dead, and I will be with you wherever you tread. Now go and teach everyone all that I said and invite them for wine and bread. So that's what I did. I went home that summer, back to my town and the African med. But the rest of my life wasn't really my own. It belonged to the boy who was born in a shed, who walked on the water and rose from the dead, a king from the house of bread. <laughs>